The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This podcast is supported by Spencer, the breathtaking new film from acclaimed director of Jackie, Pablo Lorraine. Kristen Stewart stars as Lady Diana Spencer in an unforgettable performance, which Variety describes as the most dazzling on-screen transformation of the year. The marriage of Princess Diana and Prince Charles has grown cold, and rumours of affairs and divorce abound during Christmas festivities at the Queen's estate. Diana knows the game, but this year, things will be profoundly different. The film is an imagining of what might have happened during those few fateful days. Spencer has been heralded by critics as mesmerizing and a masterpiece. I've watched the trailer, and it's beautifully shot, taking me right back to that very moment in time. Spencer opens exclusively in theaters on November 5th. This is one you don't want to miss. Well, welcome to a new episode of The Shaken and Stirred Show, folks. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, in fact, Woodstock, New York, and I'm not in my usual location. Normally, guys, when I come to you, I'm coming from my office because I record you know, this show at all times of day and night, but normally when my kids are at home. But this time round, we have a rather special royal guest. Yes, you heard me, royal. This is a royal-themed Shaken and Stirred, and why shouldn't it be, considering the royal family were right there at the latest Bond movie, because let's face it, when we're talking about Bonds, we're always pretty much thinking about the royal family. They are big James Bond fans. Did I shake and stir something up for you today? I did. Guess what I got for you? It is looks kind of delicious. It's rather pink and, and red and has all kinds of ingredients. And it has the very unfortunate name of a crack baby. Yep, the crack baby. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> there is no crack, there's no illicit drugs. And this is in fact a favorite drink of the Duchess of Cambridge, Catherine. And she apparently discovered this at a bar in the UK prior to actually getting married uh, to William. And it's got an interesting sort of bunch of ingredients in it. It is made from passion fruit juice, vodka, chambord, strawberries, and brute champagne. That is a lot of ingredients. And they used to serve it at this particular bar in a large syringe which is not very classy, but apparently very, very popular with the royal aristocratic set. Now, you know, that in itself, it seems to be a sort of a rather extraordinary thing, except for the fact that this drink, the crack baby, made it through all the way, apparently, some, some guests say, to the royal wedding itself. So they were drinking this at the royal wedding, but I can't imagine they called it the crack baby. Otherwise, I think the queen, had she seen it, wouldn't have allowed it. But anyway, let me try this. Mm. Actually delicious and fantastic. I don't taste any crack in there at all. And you might have noticed that the snapper is not with me. The snapper can't make it today. I think he might be a little scared by his doppelganger who is coming on as our guest, although he won't admit it. And I'm giving it away as usual. You may look for clues at the beginning of the episode as to who we're talking to, but we do have a rather extraordinary guest. And before we get to him, how about a little booze news people right well booze news this week is all about a secret tunnel apparently according to the sun newspaper and the star they're reporting that the queen has 
check this out, a secret tunnel between her palace and Duke's Bar in Mayfair in, in London. Now, it seems ridiculous, okay, that she would have a tunnel, but uh, this is being confirmed by Princess Eugenie's husband, Jack Brooksbank, uh, who apparently made it slip that you can discreetly head to the cocktail bar from the palace thanks to hidden underground tunnels. Now, it, it sounds extraordinary, right? But um, there are apparently other tunnels inside the palace that lead from one place to another uh, so that the queen can make her way through the palace without having to perhaps be seen by everyone, especially when she's going to press conferences. There have been reports of other types of tunnels that move around in there. So it's not completely uh, sort of crazy as an idea, but it, it does sort of speak to something rather unique. Could you imagine if there is in fact a secret tunnel? Now, apparently it goes from St. James's Palace all the way through to Duke's Bar. And Duke's Bar is also known for having the best martini in London. So if you ever go by, get yourself a martini and perhaps you never know, there might be a royal visit. Now, speaking of royal visits, we've got one ourselves. So our guest today is a best-selling author, broadcaster and journalist. And he also happens to be the ninth Earl Spencer. Please welcome Charles Spencer. Charles, how are you? Very well, thanks, Nigel. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a, it's a fantastic podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure, a real pleasure. And it's funny because I think obviously the last time I saw you was actually at Althorpe yes. um, when I got to spend the weekend there, uh, you know, with the Pamela DeVos and the DeVos family with Dan and when it was her birthday. Well, absolutely right. And you turned out to be a crack shot with uh, on the ski, the clay pigeons. I remember that. Very impressive. I'm so happy that you remember that, actually. It's, it, it took me a bit by surprise as well, actually. I'd, I've never actually done it before. But, you know, my dad was a marksman in the Marines. And yes. so I've really, clearly got, you know, the eye of something. I was very impressed, actually. It's so interesting you say that because I, I, I've been shooting all my life and you just picked up the gun and it was like it was natural for you. So there must be a genetic code that's gone through you. It sounds slightly terrifying when you say that. I just picked up and it seemed natural You're a sniper you. in waiting. <laughs> I'm like, it's probably the last thing I'd ever want to be described as. But, but there you go. I'll take it. Um, on that note, what are you drinking? Well, I, I, I love, there's a, a few things I enjoy drinking cocktail-wise. Well, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm mainly a wine person. And one's margarita, but I see a lot of people have done their margaritas. And, and actually, it's quite an English thing, but I'm going to go for a Bloody Mary. Um, and the Bloody Mary would have to be made by me because I'm not saying mine are the best in the world, but they, they are the, the ones that I enjoy most because that you can really mess up a Bloody Mary so easily by, by really trying too hard. And um, over years, particularly when we have weekends of people staying because, uh, you know, my family home is, is really about entertainment and it was built for that. I found that if I tootle off by myself into the bottling room and concoct a Bloody Mary, it does tend to get people back on their feet again after a big Saturday night. What are your favorite ingredients? Because funnily you should say that, obviously my co-host Tom Astor, who is, is not with us today, he'd have a thing or two to say about the Bloody Mary because of you know Vincent Astor and the, uh, the Red Snapper, which, which is apparently the oh, origin yes. of the the bloody mary and he created that which was with gin and uh you know and that was what back in harry's bar back in the day 100 plus years ago so there's a lot of provenance there but you know what is your what, what is, what's your go-to are you a spicy bloody mary yeah so what i try to do is when i'm mixing it i make two i make one that's a virgin bloody mary and the other one is the real deal but the, the key thing to me is to balance the heaviness of 
tomato, if I'm allowed to go English on the pronunciation, um, the tomato juice mustn't be too cloying. It has to have a lot of fresh lemon juice uh, and none of those awful substitute. I mean, they're very useful for cooking and everything, but you can't have a non uh, real fresh lemon juice in a Bloody Mary, I don't believe. So I put in much more than, than most people do. I like the thinning effect it has on the cocktail. But also, I, I can kid myself that it's actually doing some good with all that vitamin C. And that's the key ingredient. I also like a little bit of horseradish in that to, to give it a bit of pep. I happen to have a very uh, spicy palate, so I do throw in a lot of Tabasco. But, you know, the, the real heart of a Bloody Mary isn't... I don't believe that the vodka, it is the, what, what you and I would call Worcester sauce, but the Americans would call Worcestershire sauce. And I think that that is the guts of the thing. It gives it a sort of potency that, that it would otherwise not have. And are you a Leon Perrins, strictly Leon Perrins, or is there? Yes, I've only ever tried Leon Perrins. I mean, you know, occasionally when I'm stuck in America, I'll take whatever's going. But Leon Perrins just shakes it. And I know the numbers I need, not by you know, volume, but by sight and, and shake. And I've got used to it. And the other thing, key, uh, well, two other things which I think are key. I have to say, I don't think the choice of vodka is that important. Uh, it shouldn't be something that's going to strip the table, but it, it can be any of the obvious brands in, in my book. But I think uh, a, a good smattering of celery salt brings out the sort of zest in, in, in the whole thing. And then I also like to crunch fresh black pepper on top of each glass. People can ignore that if they want, rather like salt on a margarita, because you can get round it by you know, sucking. But um, that's it, really. And maybe with a with a, obviously a stick of celery for those that like it. I, I always find that gets in the way. And, and, and I, I like the sort of uh, soupiness of a, of a Bloody Mary is, is the, the key of it. It's, it's something that is a real pick-me-up and actually can, can replace a meal. You know what? That is going to be one of the best descriptions of a Bloody Mary I think we've ever heard on the show. It is so well, thank thorough. You have literally, I, I'm with you on every aspect of it. And I think every, there's not a single person who hasn't, you know, we all love the sight of a Bloody Mary with the celery sticking out. But how, to, how can you possibly ah. drink it without either sticking it in your eye? And then when you put it out, <laughs> what do you do with it? Because it's dripping with Bloody Mary. Where do you put it? I mean, it's like I a agree. And the other thing, the other thing which you've made me think of in terms of things that get in the way, I don't want an ice cube in my Bloody Mary. I want everything chilled. You know, it's got to be cold, 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 uh, down to the vodka and the lemon juice. But what do you do with the ice? It either turns into a sort of watery log of nothingness that's going to kill the, the taste, or it's just, it's just there. So best not to have it. Have everything cool enough that it's going to do the job without an ice cube getting in the way. Wow. That, by the way, people, might be the biggest tip of the, of the bunch because <laughs> Americans are absolutely obsessed with their ice. It, it's, uh, you know, and everything is iced to the T's and, and, and lots of ice and crushed ice. And, you know, to, and you're absolutely right. When you're talking about cocktails specifically, they, it ruins the drink. I mean, that, hence the whole shaken and stirred, you know, what was that, you know, why do people shake a, a, margar you know, a, a martini rather uh, versus stir it and all the rest of it? It's because of the ice breaking up and diluting it. You don't want to do that normally, unless you're James Bond, in case, which case he likes to shake everything. <laughs> um, yes. 
other reasons. Great, great story about about your you know your chosen drink. Um, I'm going to have to make one of those next time round. Like you've done a lot of things. Listening to you describe cocktails, you could be a bartender, but that's you know for another life <laughs> for I, sure. I'd enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure you may have. Obviously, you may have mixed a drink or two at home once before. But look, you are the author of seven, if I'm not wrong, nonfiction books, including three Sunday Times bestsellers: Blenheim, Battle for Europe. Um, which was shortlisted for Historical Book of the Year in 2000 and, at the 2005 National Book Awards, Killers of the King, which was the second highest selling history book in the UK in 2014, and your new book, which is uh, right now, currently while we're talking, uh, available for pre-order, and it's called The White Ship. And when does that actually come out? On the 19th of October in the US. It's been out over here in the UK for, uh, for a year now. Yeah, and it's the first time I've done something medieval. Um, and in fact, I always look, Nigel, for a, a really rollicking good story. You know, I'm not a... people. When you say, oh, I write history, people tend to smile politely and glaze over. But I'm not trying to break new academic barriers with my book. I'm trying to tell true stories in a, an engaging way. So I guess I'm what's known as a narrative rather than an academic historian. And with The White Ship, you know, it's one of those things that just happens. You know, like with your life, you're so busy, but being busy leads to further busyness. And I was uh, asked about five or six years ago by a, a very successful English female historian called Alison Weir. She sold more history books than anyone else who happens to be female in England to go and do a keynote speech at Leeds Castle to a bunch of Americans, actually. They were, they were coming over here to do a historical tour of Britain. And I, my subject I was given was a history of the Queens of England. And I did touch on this true story of the White Ship, which is the greatest maritime disaster that Britain's ever suffered. It took place exactly 900 years ago, last November. When you say, when you say it's the greatest one, because what? Because the, the, the future king died on it. Yeah. It changed the whole history of England. Look, I, 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 when I say that, people go, well, what about Titanic? The Titanic was an appalling loss of life, and it's within, you know, modern times. And so, there, of course, I'm, I'm not in any way devaluing any of these tragedies. But, but in terms of the white ship, it was phenomenal in its impact, because on board this, actually, the medieval Titanic, as the white ship's become known, you had the only male heir to the throne, uh, he was William the Conqueror's grandson, a prince called William. And 300 of the most important men and women in English and Norman, because we controlled Normandy at the time, uh, English and Norman society. If that prince hadn't drowned on the shipwreck one freezing night in the winter of 1120, there would have been a completely parallel history of England. You wouldn't have had Magna Carta. You wouldn't have had Henry VIII. You wouldn't have Queen Elizabeth II. It would be a completely different story from 900 years ago. And it's just because of that one uh, moment of, uh, well, not just bad luck, actually, because it's part of the theme of our talk today. They had had rather too many cocktails, the passengers and the crew. In fact, they, they had spliced open three enormous containers of, of wine. And um, it, the young prince, teenage boy, thought it'd be very good fun for his, uh, his fellow travellers to get stuck in. They all got drunk. And then really criminally, stupidly, they got the crew drunk too. And then they hit a rock uh, off the coast of Normandy, quite near where Omaha Beach is from D-Day. And they all went down, apart from luckily for history and, and certainly luckily for me with my book, uh, one man survived who was a butcher and he clambered onto a piece of broken rigging and, and, and managed to survive the night. But he saw everyone go down, including the prince. 
So that actually, that's, you know, that leads me actually really to my first question, which was, you know, obviously when you're writing these sorts of books and clearly one from, you know, almost a thousand years ago, 900 years ago, how on earth does you, do you gather the information? And if it's one eyewitness report, is it not being written by somebody else before? Or how do you, you know, and when you, when I read your book, you bring the subjects to life, but it's not fiction, right? You're, 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 you're a historian. So, but there's a fine line. There's got to be some sort of fine line as you, as you sort of suggest things. And you're looking at tapestries, you're looking at readings, you're looking at any part of history, but what, what is your process? And, and, and how do you, you know, how much leeway do you give yourself, if any? This is quite an interesting period because the loss of the heir to the throne and so many prominent people got everyone's attention at the time. So there are nine contemporary chroniclers whose histories still survive, who each cover this story. Out of those, there's one with a very odd name called Orderic Vitalis, who is a monk, an English monk living in Normandy. And it's quite clear that he spoke to the sole survivor, Barrow the Butcher, and got his eyewitness account. So I give him the, the, the largest credibility when it comes to the story, because the detail is so specific. What you have to look at with these chroniclers, though, and I, I have huge respect for anyone who has faith, but they are all Christian monks, and they all see everything through God's divine will. So I, as a writer, as a historian, um, I have to pick out the religious propaganda and tell the tale as it is, because, you know, if you see in, in those days of great superstition and religion, the slightest raindrop was put down to God's will. And, and so you have to pick that bit out and get to the story. Yeah, it def definitely seems that, you know, obviously religion, when you look at religion today and, and the sort of role it plays in history and, and versus the, you know, the, the role religion plays in history, in, certainly in medieval times, but throughout history, pretty much, it seems that everything is written through religion or, 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 the, or the reaction of, of what religion was doing to society or had to do with society versus now. You know, when you look back at that time period, what strikes you as being the, the, the strongest push that the church had on, on changing history? Well, actually, this period I write about in this book, which is the uh, around 1100, was a real change in, in, in European Christianity, really, because for uh, up until the 1070s or so, the, the, the popes had become much less important. They were just really princes in Italy. But with the Crusades, which happened just before the period of the White Ship, they started to re-establish themselves. And so they start insisting on things. So no longer, this is key to my story in the White Ship, no longer is it okay for a king to have one of his illegitimate children take over. Uh, we forget William the Conqueror wasn't called William the Conqueror back in the day. He was known as William the Bastard because he was illegitimate. I mean, you had to be pretty brave to call William the Conqueror William the Bastard, but people did behind his back. And then you've got suddenly the church saying, right, we're going to insist on certain things. And one of them is legitimacy. You cannot become a king or, or, or a duke or whatever if you are illegitimate. And that's what makes this story so extraordinary, because Henry I is England's most fertile monarch. He had 22 illegitimate children but none of them were up to succeed him because it wouldn't have been allowed by the church. So yeah, the church had a huge hold over people. And in an era where there was so, there was nothing of what we would call scientific knowledge, everything was put down to the Bible and a particularly angry God. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't a New Testament God with Jesus, etc. This is a big, booming, old-fashioned, Old Testament God who's about wrath and vengeance. 
And that's what people uh, really, when they were running their lives as, as, as much as they did, they were thinking, oh my goodness, this God is going to get me and stamp me out if I go wrong. So clearly that must have been the thought of everybody when this white ship actually you know, hit the rocks. It, you know, they probably were saying, okay, well, maybe they were drinking, but it must have been God's will to sort of drown this, this air. And his name was how do you pronounce it? Ethling? Well, it's William Atheling. And what's so unfair, you're so right, that's what happened. So the chroniclers then work backwards. And it's very unfair because they, they looked at why did this happen? Obviously, the 17-year-old prince was uh, sinful, and that's why he was killed. But that's I would not want to be judged as my 17-year-old self. You know, I mean, I'm 57. My 17-year-old self is one of the less likable people that I have been, I would imagine. You know, you're, you're full of, let's just call it self-confidence at 17. I would not want history to judge me on that. And that's what's happened to this poor young man. You know, he could have turned into one of England's greatest monarchs. Well, we'll obviously never know. No, no, for sure. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, and obviously during that time period, and I remember just when I, you know, certainly living in, in the UK and I've been now in the US for 25 plus years, but... You know, the London dungeons and the sort of the terrible tortures and various things like that. And in your book, you do, you talk about the sort of awful ways of dealing with people that, that, that betray you and the justice that is handed down um, from castration to blinding to, yeah, you know, yes. chopping off of hands and feet and everything else. You know, talk to us a little bit more about, you know, that process and why that was even acceptable and, and certainly how the church was allowed to sort of okay that. Well, that's such an, a, an interesting point. So when I proposed the white ship to HarperCollins, I said, look, they, they were sort of like, okay, it sounds vaguely interesting. And I said, well, essentially, just think of it as Titanic meets Game of Thrones meets Sliding Doors. And the Game of Thrones elements is very strong in this. I mean, the, the viciousness of human beings to each other is quite extraordinary. And you end up with this uh, bizarre situation where the king is told by the church that Killing people is not a good thing. You can kill the common criminal, but you can't kill your great enemies, the nobles and royals that you come up against. But you can take their eyes out or castrate them or whatever. I mean, terrible, terrible ways of doing it. But this was considered normal. And I, I, I've thought about it a lot since embarking on this book. And I think essentially what they were dealing with when you were a king at this time was making people fearful of you because your real power was so limited. Of course, there's no police force. Your army is only around you. You're trying to control, really, and, and Henry I, who's the king at this time, he's trying to control England and Normandy across the channel, you know, part of France now. How do you do that? You can only be in one place. Your army can only be in one place. What you do is you make a terrible example of your enemies when they let you down, and you, you encourage others to, to be feudal and loyal and good. You know, there's no limits to this. I mean, the most startling tale true tale in this book i find which i i really like henry the first on many levels but i cannot forgive him when his daughter misbehaves very badly one of his illegitimate daughters and blinds a hostage he gives permission for her two daughters that is his granddaughters to be blinded in retribution and I, there is no way a modern thinking person can find a way of justifying that, of allowing your daughters to be blinded just to put things right legally. I mean, it's, it's monstrous stuff, but it is Game of Thrones. And this is how it was in the Middle Ages when 
barbarism was normal. It's just so awful. And, and, and it is stomach churning, but you have to give the reader the truth, I think. You know, it's just the way it was. No, absolutely. And not to mention certain of those punishments are actually, depending on where you are in the world today, you know, when it comes to the chopping off of hands and stuff like that, you know, it actually happens today and in public in certain places as well. So it's absolutely not right. easily far-fetched as we, as we think. We think we've come a long way from the medieval times, but, you know, certain crazy things still go on all over the place. Um, you know, Henry I, what, what is the story of how he specifically became king? Yeah, you see, I, I think to most people, Henry I is just a Henry that we don't know much about. But actually, I, I would maintain he's one of the great kings of England. So he was the fourth and youngest son of William the Conqueror. And the Conqueror on his deathbed told Henry, look, I'm very sorry, but you're not going to get huge lands or possessions. Uh, you're just going to get some money. And Henry I, as a young boy, was said to his father, well, I don't think that's fair. I, I, I'm your most loyal son and your most decent supporter and William the Conqueror said well one day you'll be greater than all your brothers and actually he, that's what he rises to be he takes advantage of a freak accident that overtakes his brother William Rufus who's king of England a hunting accident where William Rufus gets taken out by a stray arrow to rush and become king of England and then he defeats his eldest brother who's Duke of Normandy in battle and so he gets Normandy as well which is the the most sort of terrifying warrior-like part of France so he is an extraordinary figure. And then he stamps out all people against him in England, the, the, the very mighty barons. He get, gets them all under control and introduces a, a system of finance that's still in place in England today, 900 years later, the Exchequer. You know, the, the, the finance minister in the UK is still called the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And that goes directly back to Henry I. So all in all, he was a pretty good king. And most essentially for an English king of this time, he was pretty good at beating the French in battle. And that sort of mattered. <laughs> It seems like that scene matters, still matters today, by the way. <laughs> we haven't got too far since, since then. Oh, my goodness me, that, that just those few miles that separate us. Now, the, the name the Exchequer, Chancellor of the Exchequer, you, obviously you, it, you mentioned it comes from that time period, that he invented it. Now, does it come from chess? What, what is the, where does the expression come from? It comes from the chessboard, pretty much. You're right. So essentially, Henry I's bureaucrats, were dealing with sheriffs who controlled different parts of England, coming to hand over the revenue due to the king twice a year. These sheriffs were innumerate, illiterate aristocrats. So to make it clear to them what they hadn't brought to the king, the king invented this rather large chessboard so they could see with checkers in place what they still owed the king. And so they had a visual of that, and then it was recorded for them. The officers of the exchequer had what we would consider a very long ruler, and they made divots on the side of the ruler according to the pounds or the pennies or the crowns or whatever that were missing and owed to the king. And they put identical divots on both sides of the ruler, split it down the middle, handed it to the sheriff and said, here you are, that's what you owe us. You may be enumerate, but you can work this out. And it was a very clever way of tying the finances of the country, this very rich country. You know, England at this time was this, uh, an incredibly wealthy setup uh, uh, and making sure that the king got his due from his people. So, yeah, it was very innovative, very logical, and it worked. I think it, one of the most fascinating things about this sort of whole time period is that it's certainly when people think about English people, you know, and we say, oh, you're, you know, who, where are you from? And having, you know, grown up, 
in the UK, but being of mixed race myself, my, my, my mother's from Sri Lanka, my father's English Irish. And then I come to America and people say, oh, you know, where you, they don't even ask me where I'm from. They hear my voice and say, oh, you're, you're English. <laughs> but when you, you listen to, you know, the, your history that you're talking about, we've got the sort of Vikings, we've got the Normans, we've got the Anglo-Saxons. You know, the English are really, in many ways, the ultimate cocktail, you know, it seems of Europe yes, as far as- that's so, so many, true. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think part of it goes back to the fact that England was very attractive to invaders. I mean, as English people, we think, oh, it's just William the Conqueror, but it wasn't. There were endless invasions uh, of ancient England. And it was people trying to just grab some of the money, some of the wealth from the monasteries or whatever. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. And in fact, my house where you've been, uh, Althorpe, we are right on the borderline of where the Vikings and the Saxons established a peace. So literally on one side, you've got Saxon settlements, which we, I, I, I was digging in one the other day, actually. It's a, a, a very, very ancient um, farmhouse. But on the other side, you've got the Vikings who were uh, sort of bought off and told to stay one side. Well, they, they, they sort of did, but they didn't. You know, you had a, a, a very aggressive forces coming to England, doing battle, pillaging the place. And, and and raping it too. What were we speaking at that point in time? Were we speaking French? Were we speaking English? And, and, and what was that? You know, what were the locals speaking? Ah, oh, well, that's a good point. So the locals were speaking English or Anglo-Saxon. They couldn't probably write it; just the monks could. The uh, Norman aristocracy who took over after William the Conqueror won the Battle of Hastings in 1066, they were speaking a very complicated form of French. I mean, actually, when I was dealing with that the, the, there's some I, I wanted to get across in this story uh how the people of the white ship they all drowned because nobody knew how to swim i mean which is an astonishing thing to us swimming just was not a pastime the only people i could find who could swim were those directly involved with the sea such as fishermen who had to get snagged nets um, oh. but i found this old poetry which brought across some of the feeling at this time and i thought oh it'll just be in french and i i did french when i was sort of 18 or so but my goodness, it's very, very strange. It's got a bit of Latin thrown in and everything. And I, I found a very obscure academic at Cambridge University to help me crack the code. Um, so yeah, I, it was a sort of uh, bastardized French that the aristocracy were, were, were talking. Uh, we know William the Conqueror tried to learn English, but as people still find today, it, you know, English is a very complicated language and he gave up. Um, he might have conquered England, but he never conquered English. And you have um, also Henry I, you know, he could, these people couldn't write. You know, Henry I was considered incredibly intelligent for a royal or an aristocrat because he could read, but he couldn't write. So this was a time of mixed uh, abilities in terms of literacy and mixed languages. When it came to law and things like that, a lot of it was put down in Latin because the Norman aristocracy, the church, and and uh, some of the English aristocracy could understand that. There we bring in Italian as well, right? So that, well, Latin rather, but yeah, so they just, you know, it's, it's again, it's so it's such an interesting sort of story. But when you talk about, I guess, Henry I at that point in history too, what part of England do we have? Did we, was Wales and Scotland a part of, of England at that point? Or was it united? We had Normandy, so we had a part of France. Yes, yeah, so we, we basically had England and Henry I married uh, a princess of Scotland called Matilda, whose father actually killed Macbeth. Um, wow. But the real Macbeth, and I love, you know, when you're doing these stories, you know, my true, you know, nonfiction books, 
I love to go off at those little tangents and bring this alive. You know, the, the birth of re real history is not some henpecked neurotic such as Shakespeare presented, but a really decent and successful King of Scotland. He was concerned with orphan rights and widows' rights, and he was wealthy and he made sure the economy of Scotland flowed to the extent that he could leave Scotland and go on a pilgrimage to Rome and impress the people of Rome with his generosity to the poor. Anyway, going back to that, the, the, the Scots were very independent. They had separate kings. Uh, Henry I was clever enough to make sure that he stayed on the right side of his Scottish in-laws because his main prize was fighting the French and he couldn't fight on two fronts. The Welsh were an unbelievable problem at this time. They were a series of very angry chieftains, really, who every time there was a problem in England took advantage of it. And in fact, with the sinking of uh, the white ship, they rose in rebellion because the main man who kept them under control, the Earl of Chester, was one of the ones to drown on the white ship. So they rose up then too. The English chroniclers don't think much of the Welsh. They're seen as these sort of dirty, untrustworthy savages. But of course, they were the original English people. They'd been driven to the West by Romans, by other invaders, and they were living in the hills because that's where they were safe. But they were the original inhabitants of, of England, just pushed it to one side. And then the Irish were... Never tell real... the Welsh that. I know, I know. <laughs> never let the Welsh know that. They're actually the original English. <laughs> that's hilarious. Something else to sing about. Um, you know, that's the thing with the Welsh. The English always think of the Welsh as just being very good at singing and very good at... Uh, the sport, rugby. But the, um, uh, and then the Irish were, uh, again, very tribal. They were, they were looking for any trouble going, you know, to take advantage of the English. And there were raids, uh, you know, the, the Irish, some of the Irish would take slaves uh, from England out of Bristol, the port down in the southwest of England. That was a big trading place for, for slaves. Where were slaves coming from in that period? So in, in, before the Norman invasion, they would be captured in battle between tribes and they were it's an unbelievable you know we forget this but when william the conqueror uh, overcame england in 1066 between 10 and 30 percent of the english population were slaves we can't actually narrow it down more than that but you know slavery was fully flourishing i'm afraid to say and the normans we think of them as these sort of savages who came over and took england but actually they they found slavery absolutely abhorrent and, and stamped it out uh, if you look at doomsday book which is a, a record of all the little villages and towns in england from the late 11th century the normans register you know how many slaves were in each village you know and there were a lot crazy unbelievable yeah and and, and so they were europeans as well and just from any kind of battle but also locals perhaps potentially right absolutely they were local and they had no rights whatsoever as, as you'd expect from slavery they had no right to the law they had no right to defense or property uh, they could be murdered without any problem you know no one was going to hold you to account actually what i find interesting at this time too is how important the kings were so when a king died, and they often died suddenly or bloodily or whatever, there was a massive rush to put someone else on the throne because this is unbelievable to us too. Between the time of one king dying and the next one going on the throne, you could commit any crime you wanted and there was no, no one was going to come for you because it fell between two kings' lives. The crime, such as it was, whether it was murder or whatever, was breaking the king's peace 
if there wasn't a king, there was no peace to break. So people used to go completely crazy at the death of a king. If they learned about it, they're going to kill their enemies across the valley or whatever, knowing that nobody would ever hold them to account. My goodness, that's like the modern pur I mean, the, 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 the historic purge. Have you heard of this, this show this, where basically there's a time, a, a day, once a year, where you can kill anybody, do any kind of crime, and there's absolutely, you're not held accountable for it at all. Anyway, it's a... Well, it's, there you are. It's, it's the same, like it's same based theory. on that moment in time. It makes sense completely. Now, I guess, you know, obviously, Henry I has Normandy. What did the French think of, of a, an English king that also owned a piece of France? And was it considered a piece of France or was Normandy just its own territory? Because it seems to be very broken up at that point in, in history. That's such a good point. So, so France, when, when, there is a king of France at this time. He's got the wonderful name of Louis the Fat. And my God, he was when you see his coins, which presumably were a flattering representation. But anyway, Louis the Fat controlled only what we would call the Ile-de-France. That, that's really a large province around Paris. He did not control the rest of France as we know it today. For instance, Brittany to the west was independent, but and Normandy was completely independent because Normandy was essentially a prize won by the Vikings. Uh, when they came down from Scandinavia, they caused such mayhem that the kings of France bought them off by giving them a chunk of France in exchange for leaving the rest of France alone. So going to your, the heart of your question, Normandy was a real bugbear to the kings of France. They didn't like it. They tolerated it just. But when it, the people of Normandy, when the Duke of Normandy captured England, that was a serious, that was an existential threat to France because you had the, the, the sort of great fighting nation of Normandy hooked into the endless reservoir of English wealth. And so the kings of France spent essentially the, the hundred years between Henry I seizing Normandy and King John, who's our least brilliant king probably, uh, they, they spent that century trying to take Normandy off the English because you, to have the two together was just overwhelmingly uh, difficult. You talk about British wealth. What were our main sort of resources? I mean, what, where was our wealth coming from? Is it just trade, obviously, as an island, but, but was, or was it just actual domestic resources? We were very good traders. Uh, sorry, we, I say that. I mean, the English, I should be more um, objective. And uh, wool was a very big deal. So getting the, these huge flocks in the Midlands and in the east of England produced uh, a, a lot of fleeces. The fleeces were taken to across to... Flanders, which is essentially modern-day Belgium, where there was a, a, a hive of uh, weaving, and that worked wool was then uh, taken throughout Europe uh, along the great rivers of, of Europe. So, in a way, I mean, I think the, the the farmlands of southern and eastern England were the sort of Silicon Valley of their day. They were where the real wealth creation was, and there was other things, you know, metalwork and and all sorts of things. But but the the wool trade had already kicked off at this stage, and it was the lifeblood of English exports for hundreds of years. You know, you've got you're such a wealth of knowledge, and I love, it doesn't matter which you know lane I, or any any avenue I question <laughs> you on, you go down it with incredible depth of knowledge. Have you always had a fascination in history, and when did you decide to really just dig in? Yeah, I've always been a history nerd, Nigel, and I, I entered a national competition here, which when I was about. 12, I was entered by my school and, and came third in it, just for be, just having odd knowledge. And um, I then, I went to Oxford and studied modern history there. Oxford's so old, by the way, that modern history means after Christ. 
Um, and then I always loved it. And I, I spent 10 years as a correspondent on the Today Show on NBC. And I, from the mid 80s to mid 90s. And I realized actually at the end of that period that what I'd enjoyed most was writing, writing the scripts, keeping it tight. And I think what I, what I try and do with my books, you know, with The White Ship and the ones before is keep the reader engaged. I was taught at NBC, you've got to make the picture easy on people. And so uh, it's called writing to picture. So obviously you can write to picture with television because you're showing the picture. But I try and write to picture in my book so that I can ignite people's imagination. And actually, you know, I write uh, a book every three years because they take quite a lot of research and all that sort of thing. But when I write them, I'm writing them for my old buddy at Oxford, uh, Andrew. Uh, and he, he and I used to share, uh, share premises. And he's the sort of guy who reads one book on summer holiday every year on his vacation. And I'm thinking, I want this to appeal to someone like that, you know, somebody who's not trying to become a world expert in maritime disasters or whatever, but somebody who enjoys a, a, a romp, a true romp through history. Well, that's exactly what I, I felt the white ship was like. I mean, I, I you know, I, I picked it up first of all, and the cover was beautiful. And actually, when you looking at the hardback right here, this, you know, this, this sort of, I don't know, even little, little details like this red page, it's sort of, it speaks to you of a sort of a, a certain type of, and period of, of book. And, you know, you've got some great photographs and pictures in here and uh, illustrations as well uh, in the book, you know, of tapestries and of, um, I guess, paintings and what have you. How much do these sorts of pictures and paintings play into your research? And what do you, what kind of information do you dig out of them that, that help illustrate the story? Well, you mentioned earlier the tapestries. I mean, to be honest, obviously, with a sunny 900 years ago, you're dealing with any any visual resource you can manage. When William the Conqueror came over in 1066, he was so thrilled with his triumph that he commissioned, or, or the Normans commissioned, the Bayeux Tapestry. And it's an incredibly useful resource because we know the images are very accurate. You know, when they, they show somebody building a ship. So people say, what did the white ship look like? Well, I, we can work out what it looked like, even though, of course, there is no contemporary image of it because we know it was it was just a very large version of the flagship that William the Conqueror came over in in 1066 it even came from the same shipyard it even had as its captain the captain of the white ship in 1120 was the son of the captain of the Norman flagship in 1066 we also know from the Bayeux tapestry that there were 16 rowers powering the flagship we can therefore extrapolate, we can get a picture of how huge and impressive the white ship was because we know there were 50, five zero oarsmen on that. So it was a spectacular vessel. That's why it had 300 passengers. That's why it was such a disaster because it was the boat, the ship that people wanted to be seen on. So Henry I was offered a passage on it on the fateful voyage. And of course, if he had got on it, there wouldn't have been a disaster because he wouldn't have let everyone get drunk. He'd have had their eyeballs out for that. Uh, so we end up with the, the most glamorous young crew, as it were, of the royal party. The prince, his uh, illegitimate half-brother and half-sister, and all sorts getting on that ship and having a huge party. One of the reasons it was white, the white ship, was because it was a, a celebration vessel, a party ship. Uh, white was a Viking Norman color of celebration. This was not a warship. This was something to enjoy. And they just went over. Well, I was going to say they went overboard. They sort of did. <laughs> they overdid the partying, 
it's that's for sure. So you know, there we are. Would they have painted the ship white? Would it actually have been physically painted white? I think it was lime washed white. In that painting it white would have been a bore. You'd have to keep repainting it. You, you, anyone who's got any experience of the sea, it's very corrosive and damaging, whether it's a property near the sea or, or, or a ship on it. So I think it was a lime washed uh, wood. That's what makes most sense. Probably with a white sail. The, the effect was one of, of a sort of luminous whiteness and that's why it had its name. And we know from the chronicles at the time that when the captain was trying to sell the idea of a voyage on his spectacular ship, he, he points to its whiteness as being one of its many properties. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a kid at school and I went to a boarding school called Bryanston in the oh, UK, yes. you may know, I had a great history teacher and you know, but he also had all kinds of side stories and he used to keep us very interested in, you know, telling us the general what we needed to learn, but then also all the other sort of rumors, myths and legends potentially around every character. Um, the problem being that it was by the end of it, when it came to exam time, it was very difficult to remember which part was the truth or which part was the bit we, we, we you know, had to write about and which part was actually just maybe not 100% backed up. So how do you, when you're doing your research, decipher between what is apparently fact or what is apparently written history versus the, the rumors and, the, and, and perhaps some, you know, the actual original writer might have made something up, might have used poetic license? Yes, well, that's that's true. So, so that that's a very good consideration. So, what I what I did with this book. So, my previous four books were all on a period I really knew well, and I'd written about it repeatedly. I knew where all the research was. This is completely new for me to do something this far back. So, I commissioned a top intellectual at Cambridge not to change any words. You know, I didn't want the prose changed, but to fact check it because that they've dedicated their life to this period and I've dedicated three years to it. So that's what I did. And there were mistakes actually, because also annoyingly, a lot of people have the same names. There's an enormous number of people, uh, of ladies called Matilda at this time. There's an awful lot of Henrys and you know, that's the problem. You, you, there's an awful lot to uh, try and get in there. So I try and help the reader actually, because there's a French Matilda who's called Mathilde uh, with an extra H and ending in an E. So I try, but that is confusing. And, 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 and even, you know, great barons call their sons the same Christian name as they've got. And that makes, that makes it very easy to slip up. So I was very lucky to have this professor just give it the once over. No, for sure. I mean, without a doubt, it seems like that's something we do these days too. You know, we, you know, naming our children after ourselves, and I mean, anyway, Henry the first, Henry the second, third, fourth, fifth, <laughs> I mean, yes. it goes on and on and on, right? Um, you, you know, sort of ch changing tack a little bit here. I mean, you know, I've ever since I visited your house, I've also yeah. been following you on Instagram, and oh yeah. Know, and you have a beautiful Instagram account. In fact, it's it's actually one of my favorites to to to, to look at because you show pictures of your grounds, um, of your incredible. Are they black deer? Is that what they're called? Yes. Yeah, we have black fallow deer, which is quite rare in England. Um, yeah, we and, and we, you know, they're beautiful. And 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 of course, we have a a peacock, Tim the peacock, who who's got his own following. Uh, named Tim, it's such a brilliant name for for a peacock. Something as glorious as a peacock to give it such a normal name as Tim, but 
that was my then sort of six-year-old daughter. I said, so what should we call him? And I was thinking it's got to be Ptolemy or something, you know, something very flamboyant. And she went, Tim. And I thought that is genius. So he, he features a bit. And then the interiors of the house, and it's, it's a sort of mixture. But, I mean, you do. I mean, I, we're not trading compliments here, but your, your Instagram is sensational and so interesting and varied. And, and, and you're so good at telling a, a, a story, you know, about your dog today, you know, so interesting. And um, uh, with the tarot, you know, it's awful x-rays and all that. But I think uh, social media is something where it's fun to tell a story. So I, I use different social media for different things. And Instagram is really, for me, is about uh, beautiful pictures with a, with a history behind them, really. Yeah, and I guess that's what I was getting at. It was, was how, do you, how do you use it now? Um, and, you know, it, when we, obviously it's, it's how we are communicating and it's how we are sort of telling our modern history, in a way, is, is through all these social media platforms. And I was curious as to, you know, your take on, because especially as social media has been in the press so much recently and under fire um, in, in many ways because of the, the, you know, the way people's personal information is being divulged and, and, and also just the, the effect it's having on children and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's, there's so much information today, if you like. We have so much access versus back in these time, these, these sort of historical periods where there was zero communication unless someone sent a pigeon or someone literally <laughs> got on a horseback and said, I'm taking this letter to, to, to this next person and here you know, I'm giving it to you. There's such a complete difference in time. I'm just wondering for you, when you look at something like social media and your, and your own involvement in it, how do you think that's going to play into modern history? So interesting, because I do think the real problem for future historians will be primary sources. You know, I mean, are you going to rely on Instagram, which could be fake, etc.? I mean, you know, with an ancient letter, an ancient document, you can verify it and you have something to build on. And, and, and even more, more recent letters, you know, the... the I recently read a, a, a book called The Splendid and the Vile, which is about Winston Churchill's family dynamics, really, during uh, World War II, when, when London was being bombed. And those diaries, etc. I, I, I don't think people are doing diaries and, and handwritten letters very much now. You know, that's incredibly revealing stuff about real people. So there's no doubt, when I, when I put stuff on social media, I mean, I, I hope I'm not trying to uh, in any way be dishonest, but I am being selective. I am not going to put up something of me looking a bit rough because I've had too many Bloody Marys, you know. And, uh, and I'm going to edit accordingly and, and, and maybe promote my book or whatever, but not, I, I, don't over, I hope I don't overly do that. But, but the point is social media is an outward-facing function. Whereas the letters and diaries that historians rely on and the great documents, they, they, are, they are naturally uh, created uh, and very informative pieces of history. So I think yeah, that's going to be the problem. You're going to be dealing in the future as a historian with the way people want to be seen rather than how they really are. Yeah, clearly. I mean, there's just so much information out there right now, whereas when you're talking about a letter, perhaps, or, you know, perhaps, you know, there were five or six people who wrote about this at the time, because literally there was, you know, a handful of people who were even literate, you know, yes. versus today where 
everyone's writing history to some extent. Everyone's speaking on history. There are so many different outlets. You know, just the concept of what's happening in in, in a modern sort of in modern history, what's happening right now. The, the the translation of what's happening it's so mind-bogglingly confusing even in the moment to think uh, to know what's happening then to, the, versus a sort of to, to sort of look back at this point you know in, in from the future it just it, it's sort of a you know I, I you know looking at what you're talking about it almost seems like a much simpler time do you think it was much simpler back then or do you think there were you know back in sort of medieval times and just in history in general that you deal with was it simpler or was it just different well, it was simpler in terms of the basic structure. So whether we see it, it's what you and I would consider feudal, whether that's exactly the case, where you have a very direct line of command through society, you know, the king and his lords and, and, and the knights and then the, the farmers and et cetera. And, and then a, a sort of almost a parallel line of command through the church. And that was really, they, they were the big ones. And then you sort of knew where you stood with, with both of those centers of power. But what you've touched on is so interesting because what's simpler was communication. I mean, okay, it was very labor intensive and tricky, et cetera. But if you got a communication from your Lord or your King, you paid attention. You, you sort of touched on this earlier, you know, this whole idea of fake news. I mean, the, the, the possibility of fake news now is very real, isn't it? I mean, mm. we, we could be watching something on cable news that's entirely manufactured. I'm not saying I, I, I'm not being remotely party specific. It's possible for anyone to do that. Was there fake news back then? Would could that have been the thing? Could a, a someone, a, a lord, or someone, or even just a, a layperson, write something and potentially, you know, or, or steal a seal and seal the back of it and send it off for false information? Was that actually happening? Yes, I don't know, but I, I can't think of an example of uh, stealing a seal. But I'm sure that was possible. But yes, there were, there were the humans have always had their dishonest attributes too. But it was harder to cover it up, I think. I mean, it's a big, bold move to pretend this document comes from someone and it doesn't because you, it, it's interesting. I, I think where I think things were simple, more simple, simpler than today, is that your word was really your bond. So if I swore allegiance to my local lord, and then betrayed him, either by then siding with the enemy or disappearing on him and not being there to support him, then I would be in fear of my life because you had to rely on something in this simple world of the medieval mind. And your word was the key. If you couldn't trust a man's word, then you were done. Equally, you know, the, the, the laws of defamation were, were not really in existence, but you wanted to be very careful about defaming somebody, libeling or slandering somebody very important. You know, Henry I had no, no great sense of humor when it came to being ridiculed. And a young knight wrote a very cheeky ditty about the king and his love of women and having too many illegitimate children. And he was sentenced to eyes and uh, castration, you know, being removed. And, you know, this is, this is really brutal stuff, but it's because the power of the word was seen as so key. And people were repeating this very funny ditty. And the king felt it so undermined his credibility that he had to take brutal direct action. And I think you mentioned too before that taking someone's life was considered to be 
I mean, as it, as it should be, the, they're really outrageous and the church really sort of frowned upon it. And, and so these other perhaps punishments were, although terrible and seem almost worse than having your life taken away, um, were, were, were deemed acceptable, right? Yes. Well, that's, that's really the, an example I can give you of that is that one of Henry I's courtiers planned his assassination and um, ended up by getting caught. And when he was caught, people thought how, how incredibly merciful the king is because he's not had him executed. He's just had him blinded and castrated. Well, to be honest, I don't know which I'd prefer because the agony of, uh, of that, I mean, but that was considered the, the soft option. Oh, you know, on, on that note, uh, before we wrap up, which is a conversation, and I, you know, I, I, I'm a sque- sort of squirming here in my seat as we <laughs> castration and everything else over and over again on this podcast, but um, which is not normal conversation for us on the Shaken and Stirred show. <laughs> but um, we have something called Last Orders, which is a sort of very simple, fun series of sort of little questions just uh, to get a little bit of insight into you. I'd love to know what year would you like to travel back to? Any time in history and why? I'd love to go back to 1066, actually, in the Norman invasion, because that was such a key moment. It just shifted everything. And it was all done. It was all so close. You know, that in 1066, England was invaded in the northeast and the English won that battle. And then as soon as they had won it up at Stamford Bridge, they heard, uh-oh, the Normans had landed in the south. And I just think that the that period i'd like to have been in england during that period when everything was up in the air basically the whole future of england was on the toss of a coin how unlucky to be invaded twice in the same few weeks you know and to have to sprint from the northeast of england down to the south coast and defend it i'd love to have seen a, a country at it really on it on its most sort of awkward moment i think that would have been fascinating you know, it's, it's so funny, that period, 1066 and the Battle of Hastings, I mean, it's probably the, one of the more romanticized moments from a history teacher's perspective. I don't think there's not one history teacher that doesn't talk, isn't so excited to, to teach that moment in history. It's, it's sort of drilled into my head. It's the one date you'll absolutely never forget. It's true. It is the date in English history, yes. All right. So if you had to be any character from history other than yourself, who would you be? <laughs> I think... It would be very interesting to be a, a figure who really left a mark. Now, I'm not a, because I'm not remotely scientific, of course, there are great scientists that have left their mark. But I think uh, somebody who's a, a, a great thinker. And I was thinking really, I, I, in fact, last night I went to a Patti Smith concert in, in, in London, which was great. And she was talking about Thomas Paine. Now, Thomas Paine is known to Americans, if at all, as, as, as one of the great creators of the Declaration of Independence. It's his thinking that fueled the revolution in France and, um, and in America with really interesting ideas about the rights of man, essentially. And I think he, he gets the bill because how amazing to have your thoughts brought to life in, in revolution in, in one of the largest countries in Europe and then in what is now the United States. I mean, that is an incredible legacy. It would have been, would have been fantastic, extraordinary. And I think, again, not something that's known t- too much. No, people don't really talk about that. No, Patti Smith does. <laughs> Maybe there's a book in there too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Final question, shaken or stirred? I think shaken. 
I mean, if you if you guide me on this, I mean, is it 50-50? Would you say that your people say that? We have a combination of that and, and shaken both people say too, but it's, you know, it, it really has a lot to do with your personality. Like I think, you know, some people like to st stir the pot. Other people just like to shake it to a point where it's obliterated and it's just, it's like they like to just shake things up. Well, so. I, I think I'm a, I'm a shaker, but not a, not an overly aggressive one. I, I don't like stirring because stirring to me smacks of manipulation and and being in the background and i think if you're going to shake things up you've got to take the front foot and be seen to be involved and i love that because that's literally the way i think about it too a lot of people pick stirring and i'm like no nope, it's exactly <laughs> it seems like i think something. it's probably an english thing nigel you know we, you say somebody's a stirrer it's a very nasty sort of sly person isn't it it, it is, but we don't tell our American counterparts that. We just let them, you know, <laughs> and I know that everyone on the other side is going, ha, ha, ha. Yes. Um, everybody, The White Ship, available October 19th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon and everywhere else. It's been out for over a year, I guess a year now in the UK. Not really fair that you've just, you know, you released it a year ahead of, you know, in the UK. <laughs> it's also available on Audible, um, although it's not your voice, is it, on Audible? No, I, to be honest, I've done one before and it, it really is, you wouldn't believe it. It's an exhausting experience. I wish I had done it now, but it, I, I thought, oh God, it's sort of, you know, several days of hell. But it's still, a, it's still a great read and I have listened to it. My wife also, she loves Audible, so she got it on Audible and I, had a, I listened to it. And I'm like, that's not Charles, but, it, but, she, but he <laughs> does a good job. So it's, again, available on Audible as well. The White Ship, congratulations and, you know, really good luck with it. Thanks, Nigel. And what a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All the best and cheers. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken Instead. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.